0: You ever get the feeling that everything in America is completely fucked up? You know that feeling that the whole country is like
1: one inch away from saying, "That's it, forget it."
0: Yeah, that's where we are. I'm Robert.
1: I'm Sarah,
0: and we're here to talk about pump up the volume.
1: The first four minutes.
0: Yes. So um, it's 1990. Let's see, I'm already 14, you just turned 14?
1: Yes, I turned 14 the same week that the movie was released, and I was just starting high school myself. Yeah. And
0: then along comes the movie about a high school student who doesn't give a fuck, and that was cool. Especially because I went to see it with my parents, yeah. who were like religious conservatives, and they didn't, I don't think they liked that. But we did stay for the whole movie.
1: I definitely did not see this movie with my parents, who were also conservative, but definitely did not take me to movies like this or even let me see movies like this. I ended up seeing it the first time with one of my best friends from that ninth grade year, and we ended up running it because she really liked Christian Slater, so we ran two of his movies that Friday night and watched it at her house.
0: What was the other one? Oh, we talked about this before, yeah. that it might have been Gleam in the Cube. Gleam in the Cube,
1: I think, is what it was.
0: <laughs> yeah, because he was already kind of a thing. He'd been on TV shows. He'd done Gleam in the Cube. He'd just done Heathers. When this came out, Young Guns 2 was already in theaters a few weeks earlier, and he was in that. Uh, Legend of Billie Jean, Twisted, that movie with Sean Connery. Name of the Rose. So he was kind of a known person at this point. In an interview recently, he said that he thought Pump Up the Volume should be a movie he should be known for now. Or rather, in 2015, I think the interview was.
1: Yeah, and it is interesting. Like I said, we ran into Christian Slater movies that weekend and Pump Up the Volume. I remember very distinctly in the other one. I had to no offense to Gleam in the Cube, but I was trying to remember I do not I was. don't
0: even remember the plot of Gleam in yeah. the Cube. I know he skateboards. Otherwise, I remember nothing about it. There might have been, like, mobsters or something. I don't know. Pump Up the Volume, he plays Mark Hunter, who has just moved to Arizona from the East Coast and runs a pirate radio show out of his room in his house in Paradise Hills, Arizona. Full little suburban neighborhood. Actually, Saugus, California, pretending to be Arizona, back when Saugus and Santa Clarita barely had anyone living there. <laughs> yeah. I uh, Anyone who's heard me and other shows would know I obsess about filming locations and the opening shots of suburban neighborhood. I'm like, I don't know where that is because... This area, Santa Clarita. Saugus does not look the same nowadays. There's a lot more houses, a lot more buildings, a lot more businesses. At the time, it was just barely a thing. So it looked pretty well as a dirty Arizona suburb.
1: Yeah, and some of you might know Saugus because of the perfect school shooting that occurred there just about a year ago. Where five people in Saugus High School were shot and killed. Wow. And 1990, when this film was set, I think was pre a huge shift of a lot of these things happening in America. Mm-hmm. Columbine was what year? That was in 99. Okay, so the end of it. We
0: we'd had, yeah, because we had like three or four major ones in the 90s, and I think we'd had one relatively big one in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that wasn't really a thing yet that people talked about. it. People may have shot people,
1: yeah, but we didn't talk about it like that. We probably blamed gangs
0: and other stuff whenever someone got shot.
1: So 1990, and right before the internet was taking. obviously the internet existed then, but in terms of there being mass usage, 1990, we had a lot of happy, wholesome family pop songs dominating the charts and it was right before the grunge era started and right before the what people refer to as the golden age of hip hop was the year before um Tupac had his first album released and so just a very interesting time like right before an interesting time there musically and then it was also right in the beginning of the time where you had this 24-hour cable news cycle so when i heard the opening sequence now in 2020 it was pretty wild just at how perfectly true it still is today but also just how well the movie without directly naming things of course was predicting a huge cultural shift that was about to happen
0: even in terms of movies it's visually very much an 80s movie like the we get the mm-hmm. opening title card in these four minutes and it's the graffiti like stencil put up and then like spray paint pulled down with the music cue it's a very 80s visual but yeah. 90s or 80s teen movies were generally happier and about like romance. There is romance in this movie, but the movie's not about that. The movie's about like the first amendment and finding your voice and figuring it like when you see something wrong, do something about it. And so it's a very different tone. And I think even when I saw it, I it came out for me at a time when that was a good movie to see because I was a teenager going to a private school that needed to be reminded, I think, that I shouldn't be putting up with that kind of stuff.
1: And I was a teenager starting ninth grade at a Catholic school. I'd gone to Catholic school from first through eighth grade, but ninth grade was a huge year of rebellion for me. I'd already been questioning everything that I was taught. I was cutting classes a lot. I was just, Meeting a lot of people from a lot of different friends groups, being exposed to a lot of different things, and really rejecting my parents, rejecting religion, doing a lot of those typical teenage things, but doing them in such a grand way that I ended up getting kicked out of my Catholic high school, well, They asked my parents not to have me back unless I was going to radically change my behavior and my (laughs) participation in school. I finished that year with five D grades and two F grades and went to public school the next year. So, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) definitely living that rebellious message. But I find it interesting also that you just said, if you see something, say something in one of the messages of the film. because. Again, this being right before like the explosion of popularity of the internet and yeah. also of cell phones, this is really what we've seen now over the last generation. It's not that police brutality hasn't always happened. It's not that these horrific things in America that Mark Hunter's talking about in the opening sequence haven't always happened. But now what we've seen is people are recording them. People are tweeting about them. People are. Talking about them for a mass audience in a way they hadn't before previous generations.
0: Yeah. I mean, the movie, even its specific subject is like school corruption and sc- uh, the school is kicking people out that they think are going to be a problem, but keeping their money for like the funding for those students, which been going on all along all the time. Schools, like school districts mess with student roles and make sure that certain types of students remember This American Life did a two-part episode on a school that was being integrated racially and the efforts they put, the one school put, to keep all the black students out just because they thought it would mess with their grades and their record and they'd get less money. And this fear around it, at, at a certain point, people wouldn't see it except in the local neighborhood. Even Mark's thing is local, but the movie makes it into something like you should pay attention to what your school is doing, pay attention to what the adults around you are doing. Because if you're old enough to see this movie, you're old enough to do something, we hope.
1: And schools that were supposedly integrated in the early 90s, like the public high school that I went to that next year, weren't really integrated. My high school was around 80% black and around 20% white. But we had a CAS Centers for Advanced Studies program that relied solely on standardized tests and IQ tests, both of which are racist. And so they basically had a white school within a black school because the CAS program was the opposite. It was about 80% white and 20% black. And so they put all of the white students together to take classes together in this predominantly black school in this predominantly black neighborhood. And then we were given special privileges in the form of extra field trips in the form of more qualified teachers in the form of just a lot of help and opportunities for college that students who were in the mainstream didn't get. And so, yeah, that was very much a reality and it just kept reinforcing what we now talk about as being the school to prison pipeline and what in the film they were talking about as that inequity in education. Also, the mainstream students, which were predominantly the black students in the mainstream classes, those classes were heavily over-policed. We had a lot of policing in our school. We had metal detectors in our school. But you didn't find the CAS kids, and I was CAS, and my friends and I would cut classes. We would do things, but we wouldn't get in trouble for it. The guards would help us leave school, but (laughs) that (laughs) Yeah, we would just walk right out. My friend was friends with one of the guards and we were just white kids leaving school and we're like, Hey, we're leaving. We'll be back in a few periods and nothing would happen to us. And so there was a lot of that segregation and racism and different rules for, for different kids within that school. I know that pump up the volume doesn't really address racial issues.
0: No, I, I you could make an argument in this for this first four minutes. I mean, literally the first student he pulls off the bus to go to the principal office is a Hispanic kid. But as far as the kids we know they are kicking out, there isn't a consistency in what they are. Like that they Mm -hmm. all are suspected gang members or something like that, or certain races. Because the second one is just a pregnant white girl. And it's it's hard to say. I think the movie is, if it was dealing with that also, it might have gone a little long as a movie, you can only cover so many things you could do it, but i mean Alan moyle hadn't actually made that much, even though this he wrote and directed this. he hadn't made that many things before this, so i don't know maybe it's a, it's a well not maybe it's something that's lacking in the script, like is even a consistency as to who they're kicking out. We just know they're kicking out people that they thought would be bad
1: yeah i but see why? what you're, I see what you're saying i don't necessarily buy the it would be to long argument because sure you could make a tight 90 minute film or two hour film and address those issues it's just that wasn't what this was about
0: (laughs) right yeah i'm saying it's yeah it's subject matter is not that and because of because it isn't aiming for that also it is a tighter was 141 minutes with a lot of music it's going to get a young audience And in 1990, I don't know how, why that wouldn't have played as well, which is unfortunate,
1: but true. Yeah, I'm trying to think about other films from that era or earlier that did address those types of issues, but one, not having an extensive movie knowledge since I was forbidden from seeing so many of them when I was growing up. I can't really think of any, but watching the film now in 2020, through that lens, it calls to mind some of these issues, even outside the scope of what the film was trying to do.
0: That's a weird phrasing, but I was very white in the 80s, so I'm, I'm not actually sure what, like, even black-centric films were coming out. I know Boys in the Hood was the year after this, and in the 80s, the only ones I would have even seen, which is weird that I saw them, was, like, the break-in and break-in-two kind of things. Um, so I don't know. I, what was coming out on that topic in around 90. It was more like something we ignored, and in the private school I was going to, it was definitely something we would have ignored. We, Our church, until recently, had been talking about, like, you don't mix races and stuff, because it's against the Bible, and we didn't have a lot of black members, and the school didn't have a lot of black students. I think when I graduated, the high school had maybe three black students. There were a lot of Hispanic students, because it was L.A., And but we just kind of didn't notice...
1: Pittsburgh and the high schools that I attended were more racially diverse, although mostly black and white, but still heavily racist. I think that Pittsburgh likes to think that it's more progressive than it actually is. The neighborhoods were very segregated. And as I just mentioned with how my public high school was, that was the same for all of the Pittsburgh public high schools, that they were still deeply segregated, even in the 1990s hmm. and i'm not so sure as far as now but that's not to say wow the 90s were so racist and now everything isn't being <laughs> <laughs> no, it yeah. still is
0: everything wrong in this film and more is still mm. wrong today
1: yeah like,
0: so, when he says well everything's polluted the environment the government the schools you name it yeah that's still very much true no matter how much trump ran on draining the swamp
1: And an interesting thought, because he's saying, if you see something, say something. But we've had the past 30 years of people saying all kinds of things. We can't escape people saying things. There's There are multiple cable news stations running 24 hours a day. Everybody has a podcast. Everybody can say whatever they want on social media. And while a lot of positive comes from that, with people having... The ability to have a voice and to have that voice amplified who would have been completely ignored from discourse before. On the other hand, we have all of that, but we still have the exact same problems, if not worse than we did 30 years ago. And I'm not saying that in any way to suggest that we don't have whoever wants to make a podcast or engage in political activism on social media, which is great, but I don't know. It's interesting to think where do we go from here if we're now 30 years later? And we are seeing something and saying something, but so far it hasn't seemed to radically shift the white supremacist and patriarchal structures that we still have.
0: I I think a big part of that when you talk about like podcasting, Mm -hmm. this right here is you have like what they were talking about years ago when the internet started, it's a signal to noise thing, like with Twitter, with Facebook, with podcasts. Yes, everyone has a voice, but also the white people that were middle class and had the internet access first were the first ones to get there. People were able to afford a nice microphone are the ones who have the podcasts Mm -hmm. that people are going to listen to more. They have the voices that people are going to seek out first. It doesn't mean there isn't the good shows that are saying the things you want to hear if you are like anti, like current establishment. It's just harder to find sometimes. On Twitter, There, if you aren't following the right people, there's a lot of noise and a lot of bad views going back all around. And so you have to find the right corner to listen. It's there. It's just gotten very hard to find sometimes. And with podcasts, some of the most popular ones are horrible. I mean, they're somewhat innocuous. They're not actively harmful, but they're not useful.
1: Yeah, and it is easy to forget that, Who. I'm reading or who you're reading on Twitter all day isn't who most people are reading on Twitter mm-hmm, all day. Right. It's a lot easier to cultivate that specific corner or section of the world and then forget that everybody else isn't reading and listening and watching through that same frame.
0: Yeah. Whereas at the time this film was making and Mark's doing his little pirate radio show, if he's got this voice at night that Maybe at a certain point in the film, we see the crowd. It's basically hundreds of people that come out to the park. There's probably others still at home. So he's got a rather big audience in his age group in that particular town. And that's good because that's how you get a sort of mass movement.
1: And what else are we seeing in these specific four minutes? I don't know, jumping so far ahead.
0: Yeah. Content-wise, you would get his first monologue... And we are meeting almost all of our main characters. We meet Mark, we meet Nora and her friend Janie, we meet Murdoch, who's the one who's taking everyone to Cresswood. We see Cresswood briefly, she's the principal. We meet Paige, getting at as the rich girl. We meet Maz, who's kind of the burnout, who I believe at this point has already been kicked out of school. He just hangs out in the parking lot in the morning anyway. Even in the bus at the beginning, we don't know it yet, but I'm pretty sure the kid the camera focuses on when all the other kids are passing the cassette tape around, and the girl is talking about the Harry Show as he talks about his what talks about plays music and talks about his dick. It's so how she describes his show. Is we're looking at Malcolm, who later in the movie (spoilers) is the one who kills himself, and so we're already seeing this lonely kid on the bus who isn't part of the conversation. So we meet most of our players. We don't meet Mark's parents. We don't meet Deaver or um, Emerson. But otherwise, it's all the important people that are going to be in the film later are already introduced. So the film is doing a pretty good job of setting the thing It's we have that people are being taken to the principal's office. And if you get that in the first couple of minutes, you know that's probably something that's going to matter. We're getting his radio show. Clearly, that's going to matter. We've seen the trailer. We know that's the main gist. And we're introduced to our major players. And if you're paying attention, and at, retrospectively, you know there's some interesting classes dynamics going on too. Because Maz hits on Page when she's the rich girl who isn't on the bus; she gets out of like her dad drops her off, and so there's a lot of stuff going on already.
1: Yeah. So thinking about who ends up getting kicked out of school, the pregnant girl, and who ends up getting hit on, we're already seeing examples. Do you think this film is a class critique? Primarily?
0: Not primarily, but there's an argument to be made that that's sort of underneath the surface of it because who they are kicking out at the first place is the pregnant girl who still has to go to school because she doesn't have any other options. We don't know why Luis Chavez is getting kicked out, but we know his grades aren't good. Maz is portrayed as this guy who clearly has nothing to do with his life because he's always just out in his truck listening to the radio show every night. Meanwhile, until... She freaks out later. Paige is the rich girl who they're like... Like, we meet Nora and Janie commenting on her and how she's perfect and rich and better than everyone else. So, it's definitely an underlying thing
1: from the start. And I think we did see a lot more class critique shows, especially near the end of the 80s. I'm thinking about sitcoms that dealt with that like in particular. Like... Silver spoons, or oh yeah, or oh yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the sitcom this made, this movie makes me think of was Family Ties because yeah. we'll get to it in the next segment and a few segments later. That Mark's parents basically were hippies who have their come back around to be the establishment, and that was a big part of Family Ties. Is the parents were hippies and now they're just parents. You know, they're still kind of liberal, but they're still their parents. Yeah, so. In a sitcom, they're the ones who are trying to keep you from doing things, so they're the conservative element. Even though they used to be hippies, and here his father is, he's gotta hide what he's doing from his father and his mother, and his, in the end, his father does something very good toward the plot, but that's at the last, like, two minutes of the film.
1: Family ties, we have that interesting element though, that the parents were hippies, but the children, especially Alex, absolutely wasn't kind of rebelled against his parents. Yeah, he
0: was very Republican, (laughs) idolized Nixon and Reagan, and then you had Mallory. She She wasn't political, but she was uh capitalist. She was materialist, material girl thing of the 80s. And then the youngest was sort of somewhere in between, because at first her character was just like a tomboy, and then she turned in... By the time the show ended, I think she was starting to have more of a voice to her character, but by then we'd Been looking at Alex and Mallory for so long, I don't even remember now what she was doing, (laughs) which is sad. The other thing we should comment on because it's at the end of this segment is we do see his setup for where he records his show and he's part of the movie is that it has a lot of interesting music. You already commented a little bit on that, but, uh, he had, we see a stack of tapes as he's about to turn on his show and the first one, as far as I know, does is not real and does not exist, and don't Google it. It's, the first tape says Dolphin Sluts in Cages. But then he's got Soundgarden, um, Louder Than Love, which Soundgarden was later sort of a tangential thing to grunge, but not really.
1: Yeah, so that's just kind of their precursor to the big Grunge Explosion album. Just listening to a few of the songs last night, because this particular Soundgarden album... Never charted above 108, so I wasn't actually familiar with the songs on it, but they were pretty good. So some new music to check out a (laughs) few, like Soundgarden. Yeah, there were some good songs on it when we were
0: sampling it last night. Next was Camper Van Beethoven with Pictures of Magic Men, Come on Darkness. I guess it's a single.
1: So Camper Van Beethoven was a cool little discovery there. I'd heard of them before, but... Wasn't too familiar with them, but then learned last night that one of the members of Camper Van Beethoven was the lead singer who founded Cracker, and another was one of the founding members of the Counting Crows. So, if you're a fan of either of those two bands, then yes, <laughs> that was also <laughs> a very like pre-grunge kind of sound.
0: Uh, same with the next one, Pixies do little. Their Pixies are more how would they be described? They're more punk themselves.
1: They are. An interesting thing about the Pixies is Nirvana said everything great that they did. Um paraphrasing, but Kirk Cobain said everything great that he did he stole from the Pixies. They were his biggest yeah. influence. Yeah. <laughs> I, re- I
0: remember reading about them in journals, and Have You In Heaven both commented on the Pixies a lot. I was never that into the Pixies, I don't think, so I can't remember offhand what they sound like, which is annoying. But now an excuse to listen to them.
1: Let's yeah.
0: Connect to the movie more. And then Henry Rollins, Hard volume. It's the last tape we see, and at this time, while still Henry Rollins is just sort of hard rock, right? Yeah,
1: he's, I didn't really listen to him. He's much, so. yeah.
0: I've, I've I'm more interested when he talks because he's an interesting person. Yeah. So I don't recall most of his music offhand. And then we get we've already heard in his opening monologue, Mark is a teenage boy, so his monologues are going to be political and interesting, but he's also going to have Random adolescent sex references where he says he's as horny as a ten-peckered owl and over the on switch for his radio setup, he has put a piece of, you no, know, he is handwritten in like Sharpie hard. So it says hard on.
1: Yeah. And a little forewarning watching this through a 2020 lens. While I love the film, there is a bit of this like white boy whiny kind of angst that's common in a lot of 80s and 90s teen films. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah.
0: he's... Speaking from me, personally, I was okay with that at the time because he was like the kid I wish I'd been at the time. Because <laughs> he's like the loner, but then when he's alone, he's in much more interesting and he's outlandish. And he's like a shock-chock, essentially, when that wasn't a thing we talked about yet. They did exist, I think. Um, like, what's his face? Howard Howard Stern. Howard Stern was starting to be that. I think at this point he was on his station that he was on for a long time in New York, so he was famous for that. Because, yeah, it was in high school when I would watch his TV segments from his show, so yeah, long before he was on... did more TV segments in the late 90s, but that's about the same time I knew who Howard Stern was, so yeah, his behavior is understandable, but... If you made this movie now, I'd imagine they would write his character differently. Yeah, I'm sure. So he wouldn't be, you know, pretending to masturbate on the air and or having a hard written next to his on Switch. But that's who he is. He's a teenage boy, and that's how he kind of gets attention, but the good thing with the movie is that that's not what he ultimately is going for, and it gets very personal and interesting, and he cares about his listeners when they write into him. And that's what the movie's about. Uh, Right at the end of this segment, we get We'll talk more about it next time because we barely get the beginning of Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows, which is the song that this movie is probably most famous for including. Now, since this is the first episode technically, why why do you like the music side so much? What's your other show?
1: So I'm the host of Life as a Playlist, where I tell stories about my life and also connect Top 40 songs to... Just political events and current events, depending on what I'm feeling that
0: week. I'm more of a movies podcaster, Movies by Minutes. Currently running Annihilation Minute every Thursday, about the science fiction film Annihilation. Two Minutes about Time, which is about the uh, Richard Curtis rom-com. That's, what, three days a week? And Cock and Bull Minute, where I, I if you don't know what movie that's a reference to, that's fine, because I never talk about it instead I just talk about my favorite movies right now. And I've done a bunch of others, but I'm sure I'll reference them another time. All right. You can follow links to all those things at lemmingdrops.com or look up the titles of them, including this one, Pump Up the Minute, on Twitter,
1: well... And if you love music and/or current events, or the juxtaposition of both, you can follow Life as a playlist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speak out! They can't stop you. Find your voice and use it.
0: Keep the thing going. Pick a name. Go on the air. It's your life. Take charge of it. Do it. Try it. Try anything. Fill your guts up. Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to, but you decide. Fill the air! Steal it! Keep the air alive! At the time this episode's going up, there's just a Twitter, but look us up on Facebook and Instagram too, because those will exist soon. Talk hard!